1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, which is a listener favorite that returns, transforming suffering into freedom, building resilience to bolster the bounce back. My first guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. She is an associate professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She is the creator of mindfulness-based mind fitness training, MF. She's taught this to thousands in civilian and military high-stress environments. A U.S. Army veteran with service in Asia and Europe, she holds degrees from Yale, Harvard and MIT. She is also a certified practitioner of somatic experiencing, and she is a force to be reckoned with when dealing with and thriving beyond trauma. <laughs> I think I have to say that because you are awesome. Um, Liz is also the author of Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Liz, thanks for joining us on the show today.
2: Lisa, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, well, you and I have had the great fortune of being able to chit-chat a little bit before we get started. And I know from what you've described that your work is very powerful, and it's based on the window. Um, And I want you to describe to the listeners what it means to widen the window and what the window is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the window is the metaphor I use
2: for the window of tolerance to stress arousal that each of us have wired during our lives. And when we're inside our window, our thinking brain and our survival brain can work together as allies instead of in an adversarial manner. Um, The wider our window is, the easier it is for us to function well before and during threatening or challenging events. Uh, we can keep our deliberate decision making capacity online. We can access choice um, and that lets our behavior be really intentional and we can match our behavior with our values and our goals. And that's also where we are best able to connect with other people to offer support, to gain support, to creatively problem solve together and. Um, People with wide windows are much more tolerant of uncertainty and ambiguity, and they're a lot more flexible during difficult situations or, you know, when plans get interrupted. So it's a generalized capacity that we have. People with wide windows can move through life with a lot more ease. And in my personal experience, people with wide windows are also pretty happy people. Indeed. Indeed. Well, they tend to be more resilient, right? Absolutely. The wider our window is, the more resilient we are. Um, you know, resilience is not uh, some static thing that we have or we don't. And I think that sometimes gets lost in our society's focus on genetics and kind of that we have genetic tendencies one way or the other. Anybody with any width of a window can widen their window. Um, and we can do that by having experiences that take us outside our comfort zone and then we recover fully and that helps to widen the window and it gives us more capacity for tolerating stress, more stress in the future.
1: When we talk about distress tolerance, um, you know, the, the ability to um, deal with stress as it comes our way, you uh, have worked in both the civilian and military environment. And one would say, well, in the military, you're in a very, very high stress situation. It's life or death. And in the civilian environment, you know, the sort of the first world problems are not as great. However, the brain does not recognize the difference.
2: That is absolutely true. And in fact, in my experience, people who are not in um, kind of extreme stress or the kinds of events that we would collectively kind of tend to characterize as trauma, things like rape or combat or natural disasters or some active shooter event, um, you know, we all tend to think those things are traumatic. And so we acknowledge that our mind and body might be having challenge, you know, coping with that. We tend collectively to write off these constant stressors that are in our environment, you know, not having enough time pressure, too many deadlines. You know, right now, getting ready for the holidays and being stressed about hosting the perfect holiday and buying the right gifts. You know, for our thinking brains, we write these things off as insignificant and we often make comparisons. Um, I so often have people say to me, oh, well, you know, the men and women you've trained who are deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, they're having issues. You know, I shouldn't be having issues. I'm just dealing with, you know, too much to do and and. All of that is the thinking brain dismissing what's going on in our survival. Yeah. Brain. And interestingly, the more our thinking brain writes off or dismisses or devalues the source of our stress, the more that actually causes our survival brain to feel threatened and it makes more stress. It's kind of a paradox, but most of us don't know anything about the survival brain. I certainly didn't before I started doing this work. And one of the things that was most important for me to figure out was, it's the survival brain that controls whether the stress turns on, and it's also the survival brain that controls whether the stress gets turned off. Yeah. That's not the thinking brain.
1: In your book, Widen the Window, you spend a lot of deep diving into the science of stress, trauma, and resilience. And I applaud you for doing so because I think the, the more we Absolutely. can understand how our brains work, the better we are at coping.
2: Absolutely. When I was first trying to widen my own window, because I've had a lot of stressful and traumatic experiences in my own life, um, I had PTSD and depression after my military service, um, and it kind of culminated with losing my eyesight uh, in 2004. And so wow. I had a life or death need to get it together. <laughs> um, I guess we write about what we need to learn ourselves. But when I was first trying to widen my window, my own thinking brain found it so incredibly helpful to understand why my mind and body were acting the way they did, you know, why I had the symptoms I had, why I was responding in certain ways. It was just liberating to realize that these things were not because I was broken or that I had done something wrong or that it was my fault or that I didn't have enough willpower. It was realizing this was neurobiological wiring. It had happened when I was young. It had been out of my control and it was just playing itself out over and over and over again. And realizing that was just hugely important for not taking it quite so personally. And that helped me not feel so ashamed and self judgmental. And, you know, these things got conditioned in childhood. Most of us don't connect our childhoods to our current life. Um, and so I wrote the book because I wanted other people to not be beating themselves up either. Uh, when we go through this recovery process, you know, it's not up to our willpower or our discipline or, you know, the way we think our way out of it. It's up to this wiring and being able to see it clearly and then make different choices to support ourselves wiring ourselves in new ways. Um, that's what it's all about.
1: Many of us believe that stress, worry and anxiety are all the different things. However, you argue the opposite in widen the window.
2: Yes. So, um, because we identify so much with our thinking brains and the stories and narratives we have about ourselves and the content of our worry, we think of that as something different from being stressed. And we think of that as being different from anxiety. Actually, all of these things are different facets of the same thing. It's just, we might be viewing it from different perspectives. So when we begin to understand all of these things, the worried thoughts in our head, the anxious kind of panicked feeling we have in our body, um, the, you know, the running thoughts of, you know, what we have to get done, um, the clammy hands, these are all just different manifestations of our survival brain in that moment perceiving us to be threatened. And it's turned on stress arousal. And that's how it's manifesting. And when we begin to understand they're all connected, it helps us have it points us to kind of root um, things that we can do kind of at the root to handle and deal with all of them. They don't all need different strategies. They just need one strategy, which is helping the survival brain to feel safe so that it can begin to turn the stress arousal off instead of leaving it on all the time.
1: And when we're in that state of high arousal and we've got a lot of cortisol and, and adrenaline pumping through our bodies, it's pretty hard to lower that level quickly and be in control when all we desire is control, right? It's counterintuitive, right? We want control <laughs> and we feel out of control and that makes it worse. It's a terrible loop.
2: It is a terrible loop. And so many of us have been conditioned to try and think our way out of it or to figure out how to solve it. But in that state, our thinking is actually compromised because the stress arousal has, it has negative effects. It compromises our thinking brain functions. And so, you know, it's another kind of counterintuitive thing. You can't think your way out of stress. You have to work with Supporting the survival brain because the survival brain can help us to get to a recovered place that brings the thinking brain functions back online And then we can do the problem-solving But we try and do the shortcut and go right to the problem-solving and that just perpetuates the stress arousal
1: and bad behaviors You know that with that we we find lots of crafty ways as human beings to temporarily take us out of that state And you all know what you do. I know what I do. (laughs) You know, the different (laughs) things that we do, which tend to make it worse in the long run.
2: Absolutely. We either rely on what I call thinking brain override strategies, where we suck it up, we power through, you know, we rely with grit and just keep going. And we suppress the emotions, we compartmentalize that lets us keep going, but it's not turning the stress off. Or the stress comes out and the emotions come out sideways. And that's when you know our, our behavior gets affected by um, our it's driven by our emotions and our stress. I call that survival brain hijacking. And when we're in that state, that's when we rely on all of those stress reaction cycle habits. They help us feel good in the short term but they're not doing anything to resolve that stress load. In fact, they're building it like things like addictions and substances, caffeine, tobacco, the whole range of things that we do um, that don't help the body recover.
1: We are going to take a break. And when we come back, I would love for you to share some of the strategies That you have written about in Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. To learn more about the work of Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, please visit her website, elizabeth-stanley.com. And here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: And we're back with a listener favorite, continuing the conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. We're talking about transforming suffering into freedom, building resilience to bolster the bounce back. Let's get back to it. Liz, we touched upon what the window is, how we can learn to widen the window, or why it's important to widen the window. Now I'd like to turn the conversation towards strategies for widening that window.
2: Absolutely. I want to be offering some concrete things for your listeners to um, sink their hands into. If they want to know more about the science behind these strategies, the best way to do that is to read the book. And I hope that they will buy it um, and do that. But uh, as I said before our break, uh, the most important thing for recovering from stress and from trauma is to help our survival brain perceive safety in any moment. And we can do that by understanding what helps the survival brain feel safe we are constantly resonating with things around us. Um, and this is one of the reasons why stress and emotions are contagious. When we're around anxious people, if we're not careful, we're going to pick up their anxiety. That's why when you sit in traffic for a long time and, you know, you're caught in a traffic jam, you're late for a meeting and you just feel yourself beginning to boil. It's not just your own anxiety and irritation in that moment. It's all the anxiety and irritation in all the cars around you. It we are social animals and we're wired to connect in that way. So one of the first things to think about is putting yourself in environments that help your body and your survival brain to feel grounded and safe and stable. Uh, that can be being in nature. That can be being around well-regulated people um, and people that you love And that can be um, directing your attention in ways that help the survival brain to neurocept uh, safety, to appraise safety. One of the best target objects of attention for Helping the survival brain feel safety is, it's really weird, but it's paying attention to the sensations of contact between your body and your surroundings. So, um, the contact points between the, you know, backs of your legs and your butt with the chair, your feet with the floor. If you're lying on your bed, the whole backside of your body on the bed, just feeling that weightedness. Actually helps the survival brain neurocept groundedness and safety, and that is a first step for helping the body to recover. So,
1: so that's one it's establishing presence, being being firmly rooted in your body, in the moment, in the environment.
2: Yes, that's beautifully put. Exactly so. And, um, I have an exercise. The first exercise in the sequence for the mind fitness training program is called contact points and it's to help train your attention to do this. It's a five minute exercise. You can download it for free from my website. Um, so that
1: is something anybody can do. Hey, let me, let me give the plug, Elizabeth hyphen stanley.com. That's where you can go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> The second
2: important thing to um, help us get re-regulated is getting enough sleep. And by enough, I mean at least eight hours a night consistently because while we are sleeping, our thinking brain is offline um, and it's doing REM sleep and whatever. But our survival brain is in a well-being mode. And that's when we do some of those long-term recovery projects that our mind and body need. We prune you know, um, neural pathways. We help to, uh, decrease chronic inflammation. We help to repair tissue. Uh, we do all of these recovery functions when we're getting adequate sleep. So sleep is the second really important thing that and, I would recommend.
1: And can I jump in here and say that when we are in a state of stress or anxiety, sleep is often the first thing that is compromised.
2: It absolutely is. And that is part of the vicious cycle involved. Um, So helping to set the conditions for restful sleep. um, And there's, you know, a lot of different tricks you can use. I have a chapter that kind of talks about the downsides of not enough sleep, but also the upsides of some things you can do. One of my favorites in the winter is taking a hot bath, with Epsom salts and some lavender, um, you know, uh, lavender essential oil. Yes. And as you soak in the tub, the the whole body just warms up and then your survival brain really helps to, it helps to turn the parasympathetic nervous system on. You get into bed and you can drift off and have really good sleep. Um, so that's a, a really good way to make sure that getting enough sleep is important.
1: What about routine? The importance of routine in establishing safety and security?
2: I think, well, we are wired to want routine. We find having routine pleasant. And so that can be helpful in the body finding safety. Uh, Whatever we're doing in a repeated way, whether it's, you know, a beneficial repeated thing, a beneficial habit, or if it's a detrimental thing, whatever we're doing in a repeated way has big effects on the wiring of our minds and bodies. So being very conscious about which habits you choose and setting them up in ways that really can help support Our systems is important. But you're right, um, having a routine can help us feel safe. We also need to have some capacity, though, to flex when our routines get interrupted. Um, And to do that, one of my best recommendations is leaving enough white space in the schedule so that you can flex when the unexpected happens so that it doesn't kind of destroy the house of cards that you've kind of put together of tightly scheduled way. And that's very countercultural in our culture, but having a little more white space for things to breathe is really helpful.
1: And stuff is coming for us. I mean, like it or not, because that's just how life rolls, right? <laughs> that, that, that that things will happen. Absolutely.
2: We can count on having curveballs. Yes. We just know exactly when they're coming. But to have the space to flex and flow with them is really important.
1: In Widen the Window, you also talk about certain behaviors that are very prized in our society, you know, the fear of missing out, always being on, you know, sort of the being an overachiever and a a high output individual, things that we tend to prize as a culture. But they, too, have uh, a rub, right, that they oftentimes are the double edged sword. They are completely a double
2: edged sword, Lisa, because when we are constantly on in that way, we are not we tend not to be prioritizing the things that help our minds and bodies be at their optimal performance point. We're not getting enough exercise. Usually our diet isn't very good. Then um, we're not getting enough sleep. We're running back and forth between our work deadlines and we're not building in the time for our social connections and our relationships with loved ones. All of those things are needed for having a resilient life. And, you know, it, there are many work environments that um, value that behavior. They incentivize that behavior um, and they're not looking at the long term. You know, anybody can push themselves hard for years even, but at some point the cost comes due. I mean, my own life is an example of that. Um, mm-hmm. when I, I pushed myself so long, so hard that I lost my eyesight. I mean, it, it, it does come due at some point. And many of these organizations aren't going to be there when the cost comes due later on, but it is coming due. So we need to make different choices. Um, That behavior choice also tends to reinforce the adrenaline seeking nature of when our minds and bodies are stuck on high. So paradoxically, when we're caught in one of those cycles of being super FOMO or super on all the time, that's often a a warning sign that we are dysregulated, that we are not in a balanced place because our system is craving that constant stimulation. Um, that is a, a sign that we are just in constant stress arousal and we haven't had any recovery. Which is a, a form of addiction into unto itself. Absolutely. That's where the term adrenaline junkies. Yeah. 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 And it's very, very common in our culture.
1: Um, we hear the phrase inter- intergenerational trauma quite a bit. And I would love for you to explain that to our listeners and how it um, relates to what you've written about in widen the window.
2: Yes. So when we are first born, actually before we're born, starting in the third trimester in the womb, we are already starting to wire our windows about whatever width it's going to be. Initially, we do all of our initial neurobiological wiring in relationship to our early social environments, which usually means the interactions we're having with our parents because they're the people that we are having the most contact with in our early years during the critical wiring times for our nervous system and for our survival brain before our thinking brain is even fully online to be wired. I mean, it gets wired too, but it's coming on online later than these other parts. And if our, what this means is that if our parents have chronic stress. If our parents are coping with a mental illness or an addiction, if our parents are suffering from trauma or loss that they have not healed from, and that their own windows have been narrowed, we wire our window in relationship to the windows that are caring for us. So if our parents had narrow windows, we are initially going to wire a narrow window. This was my experience. Um, my, I come from a long military. Me too. <laughs> And both of my parents were uh, my dad was back from Vietnam and had PTSD, although it wasn't diagnosed. He was kind of self-medicating with tobacco and alcohol and workaholism. My mom had 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 terrible loss um, in her childhood, and she had another death during the pregnancy with me. She was in horrible depression and those her stress hormones like in the womb conveyed to me. And then the way that they nurtured me is, you know, they did the best they could. Parents always do. But when parents have narrowed windows, it has real effects on the way that the minds and bodies of their children are being wired. This is how trauma gets conveyed intergenerationally. And it it happens in the way that, you know, it can lead to their their stress hormone system being wired in a dysregulated way. It can affect gene expression. That's called epigenetics. Um, and there's been research that shows how having had um, certain gene expression turned on because of chronic stress in parents, um, it gets that that gene turned on this gets convicted. That was not
1: a clinical term.
2: <laughs> <The> non-clinical <laughs> term. Gene expression turned on. It can convey that way through. Up, the research has shown at least three generations. Yeah. So when you think about family legacies of trauma, uh, you know that there might have been war, or there might have been, you know, slavery in the past, or chronic racism, or some other big, you know, natural disaster event. Or all of these things can then convey to children and you know, we don't usually think about the way that we're functioning today as being that related to what we did as kids. But if we're not paying attention, those early windows, you know, continue to play out as trajectories over the course of our life. And I got interested in this because I wanted to not just, you know, I wanted to heal myself, but I also wanted to understand where that came from. And to set my own mind and body in a way that then I would be handing on a different legacy for the next generation. So parents have an obligation in this way.
1: I agree. To learn more about mindfulness-based mind fitness training, MMFT, to learn more about and buy the book we're speaking of, Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma, and to have resources to, to support yourself on a healing journey or someone that you love and know who might be experiencing stress and trauma that could be a benefit to support them, please visit Dr. Stanley's website at elizabeth stanley .com. Once again, that's elizabeth-stanley.com. Liz, thank you so much for being with me on the show today. This is um so interesting and a subject that I am completely impassioned about and I am your cheerleader and champion. Buy this book, share this book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa. I have so enjoyed our conversation today. I appreciate you making time to talk with me.
1: Oh, anytime. <laughs> this has been great. Let's take that brief pause and we'll be right
0: back.
1: And we're back continuing with a listener favorite that returns transforming suffering into freedom, building resilience to bolster the bounce back. My next guest is Blake D. Bauer. Blake is a world renowned teacher and speaker with an extensive background in psychology, alternative medicine, nutrition, traditional healing, and mindfulness meditation. Based on his personal experience overcoming deep suffering, addiction, and adversity, as well as his professional success, Blake's pioneering work integrates what he's found to be the most effective approaches to optimal mental, emotional, and physical health. We're talking about his book, You Were Not Born to Suffer, Overcome Fear, Insecurity, and Depression, and Love Yourself Back to Happiness, Confidence, and peace. Blake, that sounds like a prayer. <laughs> Blessing. So I'm going to say amen to that.
3: <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, Lisa.
1: Thanks for being with me today. Let's talk a little bit about your journey, because I find the best healers that I've ever had contact with in my life are the ones that have walked the path before me.
3: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give you a very abridged version because I know our chat today is not meant to be too long. I grew up like a lot of people in a very self-destructive family and environment around people who were generally good, but. You know, had, had trouble living well and, and in healthy ways. And I grew up around a lot of drug addiction in particular. And then when I was a young man around the age of 14, 15, I got heavily into drugs and alcohol and, you know, began socially just smoking marijuana and drinking, you know, alcohol at parties and social events. But then my habits progressed uh, pretty extremely to the point where I was uh, taking a lot of pharmaceutical pills smoking pot every day, pretty much all day, uh, drinking a lot regularly. Um, and by the time I was 18 years old, I had been arrested a number of times for drug possession. And uh, I was also a, a top athlete uh, I- at that age. And I think when you're young, you know, your body's a little bit more resilient and the effects of your behavior don't show so much at that point until a little bit later <laughs> in life. And so... I, um, I got a very, very bad DUI when I was 17 years old, um, going on 18. And I was on, uh, Xanax at the time, which I didn't have a prescription for and a lot of cannabis and a lot of liquor. And I actually fell asleep in front of train tracks in the middle of the night as a freight train passed. And uh, I got lucky in the sense that I put my car in park at least and I put my head back and I fell asleep and I woke up to police. Knocking on the window, and um, I was arrested for driving under the influence. I also had possession of all these substances with me. I was, you know, young and and stupid, really, and and self destructive. And uh, at that time, I was captain of the varsity football team with my two best friends, and we all had offers to play in college. And when my coach found out, I got kicked off the team. I lost all my offers to play in college, and I I felt. Very shamed in the community, you know, it was in the the newspapers and, you know, all my friends and their families and teammates, everybody knew. And it was, you know, really heartbreaking for me, for me personally. And so I went from being very arrogant and thinking I was invincible uh, around the age of 18 To uh, crumbling down into a dark hole where I was very insecure and paranoid and tortured psychologically and emotionally. And I suffered often with, you know, suicidal uh, depression where I just really didn't want to be here anymore. I felt very confused and lost and alone and I didn't know how to ask for help. And so um, the combination of that intense psychological and emotional pain and then being 18 and at this big, you know fork in the road in life i felt a lot of pressure and i had no idea at that time who i was or what i wanted to do with my life or even how to go about the journey of figuring that out but i basically and this again is very abridged version i i moved forward from the age of 18 uh, asking two questions basically every morning, which is, how do I heal myself and free myself from this suffering? Because I feel like life is, is isn't meant to be like this because I'm waking up every day tortured you know, anxious, confused, spread thin, you know, just at a loss in every way, kind of paralyzed by this confusion and anxiety and pain that I was experiencing. And then part of that suffering came from the second question that I was asking every day, which is what is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? And I had no clear answers to these questions at that time. And so Uh, that the the journey to answer those two questions led me to five different universities where I studied psychology and nutrition and all the, you know, life sciences and and then went on to study Chinese medicine. Um, So, you know, acupuncture and oriental medicine. And during this time, I read, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of books on self-help and God and spirituality and philosophy and psychology and all the greatest thinkers that have ever lived, trying to understand myself and my place in the world and, and why I was here. And another big part of my journey was I got very deeply into spiritual practices like yoga and meditation starting at 18 and continued those practices now for about two decades um, and just went deeper and deeper into those spiritual practices simultaneously studying from you know uh, an academic standpoint, the, the keys and the logic and the theories behind deep uh, sustainable health and happiness.
1: I mean, you're still a, a, a relatively young man, and I, from where I sit, you know, as being sort of a, a an older person, I go, "Wow, he he got this fairly young." I mean, you know, all of all the the suffering and the challenges that you encountered in your early life, the universe supported you clearly on a journey that brought you to this place of knowing and healing very young. That's amazing.
3: Yep. Absolutely. You know, I feel very blessed. And the truth is, is I have to value myself and take some credit in the sense that I was in such a bad place that, from 18, literally every day, all day, all I did was was uh, immerse myself in healing. And it's where I made a living. I found work in those fields, you know, selling vitamins and supplements to help me pay my bills. Um, and, you know, took whatever kind of job I could in that field, and then spent all my other time studying and reading and practicing. And because I, I really, I I write in, in my book, I felt like a sick animal. And I couldn't, you know, I stopped drinking, I stopped getting high, I even stopped socializing, I, I isolated myself from my peers and from family, and I didn't understand what was going on, and my family and friends didn't understand what was going on, but instinctually, I knew I was on the right path, because I was all I wanted to do was heal my pain and then have clarity of purpose in life, so I knew that that intention was so true and so pure that I just kept following it because it was the only thing that felt real and and meaningful to me and so
1: and so many of us want to hide our pain. I mean, I think as human beings, we are adverse to discomfort, right? We have an aversion to dealing with our own emotional discomfort, physical discomfort, spiritual discomfort, that we will avoid that which we feel daunted and intimidated by. And that sort of emotional place of reckoning is very, very hard for us to handle. And, you know, henceforth, you have all of these people who are seeking other ways to quell their emotional pain, whether it's a, a behavior or a substance.
3: Yeah, absolutely, I think you know Lisa it goes back to you know as kids, we just never learned how to love ourselves, which is really what my book talks a lot about. We never learned how to have the healthiest and most constructive relationship possible to our thoughts, our emotions, our body, and our drives these you know inner drives, and so, as a result, we spend a lot of years creating a lot of pain and a lot of karma that eventually we wake up to and then and then and then, when you feel. Like the implications of facing the truth are daunting. It's very easy to shut back down and go back into your comfort zone and your addictions and your self-destructive habits because it seems like, oh, it's too much. It's, it's too big of a can of worms yeah. to start this now.
1: And it's also systemic. I mean, when we look at, at our, our family histories and the family unit and the kinds of behaviors that are modeled to us as children, it takes a very strong and rare set of parenting skills, I think, to rise above the sort of the standard. You know, we're not taught emotional intelligence in school. We're not taught social intelligence in school. Uh, Many of us when we're young, now it's being taught there. And oftentimes our parents come from origins that are very conflicted and filled with suffering, and they never learned how to handle it.
3: Exactly. And so I, you know, I like to frame this conversation in terms of the evolution of humanity. I believe that these topics are the key to the evolution of consciousness and they represent also the evolution, both biologically and genetically that we're all experiencing as our life and then passing on to our children. So I think the single most uh, important conversation is how do we shift this relationship we have to ourselves with our thoughts and our emotions from self harm and self betrayal and self destruction into self care, self value self love so that then we meet the world from that place of loving kindness and understanding instead of being so cold and short and you know not having tolerance because that's how we treat ourselves and that's what we experienced as kid and so the the chain of pain continues and then we just pass it on to the next generation and they have to they have to try and do something about it
1: the chain of pain that is a a big term and it, it, i also think of um the work of Gandhi and the practice of ahimsa because to me, that's what you're describing. It's nonviolence towards self and others.
3: 100%. And it's a secret sauce.
1: It is the secret sauce. Um, We're going to go to a break in a minute, but I want to introduce a, a subject that you write about in your book, You are Not Born to Suffer. You talk about functional sanity, and it puts a big smile on my face and makes me giggle because, A, I think all of us are are on some spectrum of crazy, you know? And it's like what Mm. we do with that crazy that will dictate how we end up going through
3: life, right?
1: 100%. So let's jump off. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll continue the conversation with my guest today, Blake D. Bauer. The book that we're speaking about is You Are Not Born to Suffer, Overcome Fear, Insecurity, and Depression, and Love Yourself Back to Happiness, Confidence, and And again, we are not talking about Pollyanna. We're leaving her out of the discussion and we're getting real here. To learn more about the work of Blake D. Bauer, please visit his website, UnconditionalSelfLove.com. There is a hyphen between unconditional and self-love. On Twitter at Blake Bauer and on Facebook, Blake Bauer 1. That's Blake Bauer, the number one. We'll take that brief pause and we'll be back to continue the conversation with Blake D. Bauer.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: back continuing the conversation with my guest Blake D. Bauer. We're talking about transforming suffering into freedom, building resilience to bolster the bounce back. Let's get back to it. So Blake, prior to the break, we we were introducing the subject of functional sanity and I remarked on how it really put a smile on my face and made me chuckle because we're all a little bit in the crazy, I think, especially these days.
3: 100% Lisa, you know, I agree 100%.
1: Talk a little bit about what it means to be functionally sane or functional insanity or.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's so many different angles that we can, you know, we can approach this from. But I guess in, in the most, you know, practical way for your listeners is to know that, you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with these concepts already and, and hopefully we can shed some light on them. Is that, you know, we all have a lot of different thoughts that we experience throughout the day and often they can be, you know, paradoxical and they can contradict each other. And and it's very easy to get caught up in these thoughts and identify with these thoughts and feel very confused about who we are and what we think and what we believe about the world. And, and then a lot of people suffer from this, you know, fear and shame and self judgment around their inner world. And and that keeps them from addressing their, their pain inside and, and where they're stuck in their life. And so it's, it's really liberating to know that everybody's got crazy thoughts. Everybody's got Different voices in their head that come from different places, from conditioning from your parents, from conditioning from your education, from conditioning from your religious upbringing. Some people are very sensitive just to their surroundings and they pick up energy and that comes up in their thoughts and, and they, and they might think that they're crazy. And so I always joke that if someone tells me that they're normal, that's what really scares me when some. <laughs> <laughs> really believes that they're normal because that to me reflects a certain level of, of denial and ego that has not questioned itself enough and is pretty, um, you know, kind of stubborn and, and stuck. And so it's healthy to start to think like this because once you start to go deeper into these modalities, you know, we start to learn that we are not our thoughts, right? That we are much bigger than the thoughts we, we think and much bigger than the voice in our head. And another really liberating concept is, you know, you don't have to believe everything you think, which is really healthy because you don't have to believe every thought that crosses through your mind. And a lot of us You know, tend to believe a lot of what we think and then we create problems that don't even exist.
1: Well, thoughts are not facts. I mean, that's uh, that. And that really tends to irritate a lot of people when um, I know I say that quite often. Thoughts are not facts. Feelings aren't even facts, although feelings are unimpeachable.
3: Yes, I agree with that 100%. So part of the journey of unconditional self-acceptance and self-love, which is the journey of healing and whole again, you know, feeling whole again is not making anything wrong in yourself. So not making your thoughts wrong, not making the voices wrong and also not making your emotions wrong. So you can accept them a hundred percent, but also not react on them and not, you know, put you know continue that chain of pain as we were talking about so there's this middle way which is a very fine line where you don't make it wrong and you don't reject it you accept it you're able to observe it but then you also don't get so consumed by it and identified with it that these limitations or fleeting experiences inside uh cause you know negative outcomes in your life that you start to not really feel the victim basically of negative or unhealthy thinking or you don't feel the victim of unhealthy uh, subconscious patterns that keep looping and that's really empowering and and one of the one of the concepts i just wanted to throw in the mix is that w- as you as you grow in this tor- this this, uh, this form of functional sanity that we're we're talking about where you have more space between your awareness and the thoughts between your awareness and the emotion you then access this power you have inside of yourself to one choose your thinking And this is something a lot of people don't realize they have the power to do, that we all have the the power to guide our thoughts just like a steering wheel when you're driving. If you start to swerve into a a direction where there's oncoming traffic, you you want to immediately swerve back into your lane. And uh, if you apply that same metaphor to your thinking process, when you notice that your mind is slipping into an old pattern or into an unhealthy lane, you can be aware of it and then guide it back into a, a healthy direction. And then the last empowering tool that this conversation gives us is that you have this space between you and the emotion so that when it does come up, you you're not so overrun by it that you just kind of dump on everything and everyone around you. But you're able to express yourself in an honest, kind way, coming back to what we were talking about before in terms of kindness and nonviolence, because I think a lot of our problems in life. Come from reacting and then expressing ourselves extremely self-destructively and extreme in, in, in cruel, insensitive, and unkind ways. And so, this functional sanity gives us the space to also express ourselves in very kind, mindful ways, which which then opens hearts, brings down walls, and creates understanding and respect in all of our you know important relationships.
1: And when we talk about you know the definition of normal. I think that normalcy is highly overrated. You know, yep. I think that ultimately we, we say, Oh, we, we just want to have a normal relationship or we just want to have a normal job or we just want to have a normal conversation with somebody. Um, I'm not so sure that that's accurate. We, we want to have a, an original conversation. We want to have an original type of presence or impact in the things and the work that we do. But I think maybe stepping away from that, trying to be normal and understanding that we're each a little bit different with very similar desires in our lives. We all want to be loved, accepted, connected, and feel like what we do has some purpose or meaning. I think we're driven by that as humans.
3: A hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent on that. And I think, you know, that, that. That expression of desiring some, you know, normalcy comes from a few different places. And one is that, um, you know, idea of what is socially acceptable you know, yeah. and, and then some of that is just really an illusion or a fantasy, you know, because we'll think, oh, they have a normal relationship, right. The white picket fence family. <laughs> it's, it's all illusion. It's just yes. all illusion because behind closed doors, everybody's got stuff, you know, the and everybody's freak is going flying
1: behind stuff. closed doors.
3: <laughs> exactly. And then the other thing that came to mind as you were expressing what you just did was the, this, the sense of, I think, the world we live in today is a bit exhausting for a lot of us, just keeping up and and surviving the fast paced materialistic consumerism, you know, world that we live in that I think a lot of people get tired. And, and so in that statement, you know, like I just want something normal. I, my first thought was to say, well, there's like a bit of laziness in that. But the truth is, is I think it's exhaustion because it's like, you know, how do I survive this world? But also there is effort and attention that is needed to grow yourself and grow as an individual and flower and blossom in a way where you know you you do the type of work where you can accept yourself and you can be vulnerable and you can communicate effectively and and kindly and lovingly and i think a lot of people just feel exhausted from trying to pay their pay their bills and survive that yeah. there's like oh my god do i have to put in that effort to be a, an authentic vulnerable conscious human being and the truth is is that you do and so that can seem i think a little exhausting for people on top of just getting by
1: Yes, on top of this survival i I, I agree with you and it and it is and it can be daunting, you know, especially the climate in which we're living right now, where people are just there's uh uncertainty everywhere, there's uh, financial uncertainty, there's political uncertainty, there's I mean it's, it goes on and on and on. And yet what i what I gleaned from your book, and I think you're suggesting is that irregardless or separate from those things, that we can still find our way home to ourselves
3: one hundred percent and I mean you know that's you know that's where all these cliches come from is that we need to look for these things inside and not continue to look externally and that is one of the most empowering and most of the valuable investments is investing in understanding your center, understanding your thoughts and emotions so that your sense of mental and emotional health and security is not so dependent on external factors. Cause, you know, when your daily peace and happiness is dependent on the, right? The thoughts and emotions of the people around you, you're going to be subjected to a lot of roller coasters and suffering. Likewise, you know, if you read the news first thing in the morning and that's the first thoughts and feelings that you have, you know, you're setting yourself up to feel and think certain things that if you decided not to read the news for the first hour of the day and do some meditation and or do some yoga, do some prayer, listen to music that makes you feel good, your thoughts and energy for the day are gonna set a very different tone and send a different ripple effect forward into the future, into, you know, the situations and experiences that you're gonna have. And so all these things are critical and so influential.
1: Well, so I wanted to jump in here and talk about the, the, the science, what the research says or has proven to back what you're saying, because there's been significant amounts of research done on mindfulness and meditation and why it works and what it does to the body. And I think this is important for people to really understand because it is a, uh, a tool that we have available to us at any time. It doesn't cost a dime.
3: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, if you, if you talk about what's the, you know, opposite of mindfulness, you talk about stress, anxiety, reactivity, all those things increase the release of cortisol in the body. They limit the amount of oxygen that we uptake in our breathing processes, which directly affect our immune system and our biochemistry. And then when you're stressed out and you're not mindful, it also leads to unhealthy lifestyle choices. Like I'm too rushed to eat something healthy. So yeah. I'll grab the bag of chips and I'll grab the chocolate bar. And so it's all very connected. And then you're the thinking is oh, Maybe, you know, if I could just get to the end of the day, I'll have a big meal or I'll have a bottle of wine. Well, exactly. Or be my treat. Right. So it becomes this vicious cycle that feeds itself.
1: Well, if you want, to do something good for your mind, your body, and your spirit, I suggest that you read this book, You Were Not Born to Suffer, Overcome Fear, Insecurity, and Depression, and Love Yourself Back to Happiness, Confidence, and Peace. Blake D. Bauer, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for spending part of your, your day with me, and, and thank you for sharing your lessons learned with us. I think it serves as a positive role model that um, we do not have to be the victims of our stories. And can help a lot of young people out there too. I think young people have it harder in, in many respects today.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, the, the, the addiction to technology and yes. being online is it's a whole real. new can of worms. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it is real. Um, to learn more about Blake D. Bauer's work, please visit www.unconditional hyphen self love. So that's unconditional self-love with a hyphen between those two words.com on Twitter at Blake Bauer. And on Facebook, that page is Blake Bauer one. Blake, come back and hang out with me.
3: I would love to. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Stanley and Blake D Bauer, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time. Remember happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.